Amen. He is alive. We serve a risen God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you live. This is not a legend that we focus on. This is not some fable. This is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, that our hope goes beyond the grave. Our hope goes to you, risen, reigning, and we look forward to your coming. Lord, fill us today with your spirit, with your wisdom. Open the eyes of our heart. Let us know you more and trust you more. Increase our ability to obey you and to serve you. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our church, that you would supernaturally change us, help us to be able to love you, love one another, love this community well. And Lord, we pray for this coming season of Easter, that, that it's, it's been a long, hard year, that people would look to you. They'd be open to an invitation, open to, to uh, searching for you online, open to attending, Lord, opening to reaching out to a neighbor. We'd love to see just a great harvest, more and more people finding the Savior this season. So would you do that work among us, Lord? Thank you again that we can meet, speak through your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated here. Welcome. Appreciate you being with us. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in at home or watching the video later. Whatever day of the week it is for you watching, I appreciate your desire to grow, to learn. Thank you for being here. And uh, we are in a series where we've been focusing on the love of God, loving one another, carrying that love into the world. And our context these last several weeks has been understanding the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, which is this post-Christian secular culture. So the last several sermons, I've spent a little bit of time in sort of cultural understanding. So if you've missed any, they're on our website, northwest-church.com, or on our YouTube channel. You can go back and hear them, but the short version is why what's happening on our culture, what's happening in the Western culture, is that it's in a post-Christian wave or movement, which is you can almost read anti or deconstruction, wanting to tear down and remove pillars and anything that unites us to uh, the past of biblical authority or God's authority. Those things are being torn down. Anything that has any kind of external authority, there's a desire to remove it, to tear it down. Secular culture is the belief that society should not have religion in the public square, in the public arena. That's a private, personal affair, but that it shouldn't enter in. And that's the moment we find ourselves in. And one of the things that's easy to do is to think that the past was all better, that the past was good, that there was lots of faith and lots of belief in the past, and then only in recent days has it fallen off a cliff and everything's bad now. And so this is, uh, I made these charts up, by the way, but this is just sometimes we view that in the past, Christianity was an ever-growing movement. That way back in the days of the colonies, people came here to escape, uh, you know, religious persecution or a forced state religion, and they came here, and then as we became a nation, more people believed, and then in the 1800s, more people believed, in the 1900s, and the 2000s, and then now, off the cliff. Everything's bad. It was good before. Now it's bad. But in reality, uh, in, in our country, faith has been more like the orange line. There's been seasons of growth, seasons of decline. 
It's gone up and down and up and down. It's not that everything was good before and now life stinks. And it's, it's had seasons of positive and seasons of negative. And so I want to walk that through so we, we don't just get this sense that we're in this hopeless, horrible moment. Our country has been in moments like this before. So I found this great article. It's called A Brief History of Spiritual Revival and Awakening in America. It's by Patrick Morley. You can check that out online if you'd like. But uh, so some of you are history buffs, and this will maybe just whet your appetite a little bit. I'm not going to go into into these revivals at all other than just to list them so you can see that over the course of our nation's history, we've had this, not this. So I'll just run through these quickly. The first known one, the Great Awakening, 1734. The most known names with that one are Jonathan Edwards, and George Whitfield. So that was a revival, New England area, powerful preaching, lots of people repenting in the 1700s. There was a second great awakening in the 1800s, James McCready, Charles Finney are some names that go with that. There was one called the Businessmen's Revival of 1857, and that started with this Jeremiah Lanfear. It was, it was lunch hour, so there would be all these businessmen coming into the cities. And so he started a prayer meeting in the lunch hour. And so lots of business people started to come and pray and get saved. And it spawned this whole revival there. There was a revival during the Civil War. And the revival was largely among the soldiers. They'd be out there and just seeing horrible atrocities. And more people died from disease in the Civil War than actual bullets. And uh, so they're just you're around constant death. And so there was actually revivals among the soldiers. And so there was a Civil War revival. There was the Urban Revivals, 1875. You might start to know more of these names. D.L. Moody, Chicago area. There was a big revival that spawned there. There was ones in 1905 and 06 called the Welsh Revival in Pennsylvania. And also you might know the name Billy Sunday was one of the preachers in that era. Simultaneously, out on the West Coast, there was what was called the Azusa Street Revivals. That was happening in California, and that revival had a really cool feature in that it became interracial, which, think, look at the date. That was not happening in churches in our country, but this one was, and that was uh, the birth of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements are traced back to the Azusa Street Revivals in California. There was a post-World War II awakening. You might really know some of these names. That's when Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ, the Four Spiritual Laws was in that era. And that's when Billy Graham began his crusades in the 50s, 60s, and on through. Then we had the charismatic renewal and the Jesus movement, the Jesus people in the 60s and 70s. Any Jesus people? We got a few. Okay, we got a few on the beach, barefoot, love Jesus, baptized in the ocean. Let's do this. Um, So that one, many of you know. So those are just a list, but what I wanted us just to see is that there's been lots of them, right? It hasn't been one straight line of our country is Christian all this long and then falls off the cliff. So in that article, he lists 10 characteristics of revivals. The first one is timing. Revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline, which leads to intense prayer. So our nation has been through, I just gave you, I think, 10 of them, periods of moral and spiritual decline, so much so that a revival was needed to reach people. 
So this is, this is more like our nation's spiritual history than this. And so, and note that intense prayer. We've been making that an emphasis around here. We have the 21 days of prayer. We're still praying on Tuesday night. You can come into the fireside room. You can zoom in. We've got the ability to bring you in via Zoom, and you can pray with the group from home. Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. The second one, the second characteristic, prayer. God puts a longing into the hearts of many to pray for revival. God has to do it. We can't make it up. A third characteristic is the word. The preaching or reading of God's word brings deep conviction and desire for Christ. It's not techniques. It's not technology. It's, it's God's word being proclaimed, read, talked about, and it changes us. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes people to a spiritual depth they could not achieve on their own. God's spirit begins to move. God begins to awaken hearts. And a lot of times he starts in the church first. There's an awakening among Christians, and they get excited about their faith, and they repent of sin, and it blows out from the church. That's number five is conviction. Affected sinners are inconsolable except for Christ. When you're confronted with a holy God and the depth of your sin and the realities of heaven and hell, all of a sudden you I need Jesus. So again, conviction is a big mark of revivals. Number six, glory for God. God receives praise, honor, and glory for bringing revival. It can't glorify man. If it's glorifying any person or denomination or movement, then it's not going to be revival if it's glorifying man. There's this idea we don't care what happens. We don't care whose name's on it. We just want God glorified and people saved. Number seven, that there's reformation and renewal. Revival produces lasting fruit. New ministries are founded and society experiences a reform of morals as more and more people convert. This is what we need to pray for. That as God's spirit moves, it actually brings reformation. Sometimes we get it out of order. We think if this politician was in and this law was in, then that would... No, when people's hearts are changed, then they long for renewal. And they long to see our society change. And there's new things are born. Manifestations. Manifestations like fainting, groaning prayer, and miracles vary by culture and denomination. So sometimes there's different things going on uh, that are produced by the Holy Spirit during uh, revivals. I like this one. They're messy. Revivals are messy. Controversies swirl about miracles, abuses, excesses, suspicions, and theological disputes, right? It's not this claim everyone's on board and everyone's happy. And I think this one is messy because as God's spirit begins to move and people begin to respond, what also happens? The enemy begins to heat up. The attack increases. And so there's, just as the revivers are going, the enemy can be producing counterfeit signs and distractions and things to draw people away. So while a revival is happening, there's an intensified spiritual warfare, wolves in sheep clothing, and so it ends up being messy. There ends up, there's lots of good happening, there's lots of stuff happening. And number 10, they're cyclical. Revivals inevitably crest and decline, right? None of those ones we read are still happening in the same way they did. They birthed things, they started things, and they fade. Which is why I think what we need to understand from culture and what God's doing, it's more like the tide. The tide goes out. The tide goes out. We do a lot of vacationing and down on Whidbey Island, and there's certain times in the summer when they have a, on the tide chart, it's listed as a minus tide, 
which means it's going out really, really far. And we love those times because you can see eelgrass and stuff that we don't normally see. The kids torment baby crabs that we normally can't get to. The shellfish are praying for the tide to come in. But uh, there's times when the tide goes way, way out. I think that's more like what we're in. We're in a season of the tide going out spiritually and morally. Post-Christian, deconstruction, people want to cast off any kind of authority, any kind of thing from God. I think it's the tide going out. I don't know how far it's going to go. I don't know how ugly it's going to get. I don't know, but what I do know is as it happens, people get churned up because the enemy is a liar. And he's seeking someone to devour. And the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what's happening in our culture. People are believing the lie. Their lives are being destroyed. And there's a point when that tide goes out far enough that I think people begin to hunger. And people begin to go, whatever we're believing is not working. Because when the tide goes out, it comes back in. Tide doesn't stay out. It comes back. And that's what I'm praying for. I don't know how far it's got to go, but God can bring a new tide, a new wave of revival, a new emergence of believers, a new, a new work of the Holy Spirit, a new calling people in this cultural moment. So even though I think we're in some part of the flow of tide out spiritually, I'm praying for God to bring it back. I'm praying for him to move however he'll move, however he'll bring the tide in, only he knows. So our point today is that love keeps on loving. Even as the tide goes out, even as things begin to decay, even as rebellions increase, we're going to keep loving God, loving one another, loving the world, reaching out. So we've been crawling through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Today we're just going to look at one verse, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. So if you want to take a moment and turn there, Pull it out in your Bible or your device or uh, pull out. There's Bibles in front of you there. We actually just had new ones put in here this week that are the ESV version. So what you read there will be the same thing I'm reading here. It's on like page 904 or somewhere in there. So if you want to pull out a Bible, see it with your own eyes, pull out a device at home, pull out a Bible at home. First Corinthians chapter 13, and we're just going to look at verse 7. We've been looking at, Paul said that love is the more excellent way. I'll show you the more excellent way is to love. And we've been looking at all aspects of that. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. He says, love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So I want to look at each definition of what these words mean and then see how they apply to love. So the first one, love bears all things. It's the word for endure. There was actually some really neat word pictures that go with this word. This word for bears is the word for keeping a ship watertight. Like the sides of the ship continue to bear the pressure of the water pushing in on it and not letting it in. That's to, the ship is bearing up under the water. Heather and I have been watching uh, reruns of The Deadliest Catch at night. I don't know why. They do the same thing. They throw the crab pot out. Sometimes it has crabs. Sometimes it doesn't. But uh, for some reason, it's fascinating. So we're watching this, and uh, they're in the Bering Sea. It's the middle of winter. There's this crazy Siberian storm comes whipping through. And one of the boats, their bilge pumps freeze up. 
so they're not pumping water out of the boat and all of a sudden the captain says something doesn't feel right and they show the camera from his window view and the boat is going through the water like this and he figures out this thing is filling with filling up and then after a whole series of like beep 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 he explains to the crew what he's do what what's happening and adding lots of urgency and um so they're like, if this boat, if we don't get the water out, the boat rolls over, we die. It's just that simple. So fortunately, another boat had a bilge pump nearby and got it to them, and they pumped the water out, and they didn't die. But that word for bear up is that word. This boat continues to hold the water out. It continues to resist the pressure of water pushing against the side and waves bashing against the side. Or it's also the word for a pillar holding up the roof. If you're in the room, we've got a bunch of them here. These beams are holding up the roof. They're, they're pushing against it. They're taking the weight so the roof doesn't fall in. Probably nobody came in here today and thought, will the roof fall on my head during this service? Because no, there's giant pillars holding the roof up. And so that's the word. To bear up is that word that you keep holding the water out or holding the weight of the roof. So I made some diagrams today to show these words Uh, I told someone that if you see the diagrams that look like my diagrams, you know that I made them. If they look cool, you know that Mark made them, just so we got that straight. So I made these. They look a little elementary. But this is love. It's the idea of being in a building. And the first one that love bears all things, it's a pillar. It's a beam holding the weight of the roof that love continues to hold up. When you love God, you bear up under trial and suffering, and uncertainty, and you just keep loving God, and you're just holding the weight of whatever's going on. Or if you love another person, you bear up under the weight, maybe things get rough, or things get hostile, or they run away from home, and you just keep loving them, and you're bearing under the weight of sorrow and uncertainty. You're just a pillar holding that weight, because it's love. The next one, love believes. It's the word to trust, to rely on. That's what believe means, to trust, to rely on something, right? We're, we're trusting, we're believing that the roof is not going to fall on our head, right? We're, we're, we're trusting these beams. You're trusting that you're not going to fall through the floor. At home, you're trusting in your apartment complex that your neighbor above you is not going to be your neighbor beside you because the building collapses. You trust that. You trust the seat you're sitting on. We trust. So love has a trust, a belief. Right? We trust, we believe that when God says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. Right? We, we, we believe that song that we are dead in the grave, but now we're alive in Christ. And so when you love God, you continue to trust him, trust what he says about you is true. You just continue to trust that he's got it. So that's love believes or trusts. You're trusting this is going to hold up. You're trusting that God can handle you. You're trusting God has the future. You're trusting that he loves you even when it doesn't look like it. Even when circumstances are difficult. I trust God's love. Next one, love hopes. Hopes, hopes. It's a confident expectation or a waiting in faith. I often say we, we use the word hope in, in English like wish. I wish. I wish that the Nooksack River had more salmon. Gary, can we get an Amen. Okay, thank you, Gary. All right. I wish that it did, but I'm not really confident about that. Right? You might wish a lot of things, right? You wish the price of gas would be 95 cents again. It's probably not going to happen. But, so that's how we use the word. But hope is not a wishing word. It's a confidence word. 
A hope is I'm expecting something, I just don't know when it will come. That's why it has the word waiting in it. Nobody really likes that word waiting. I don't like that word very much. I want it now. I prayed it once. God's going to do it. It doesn't work that way. So hope is a confident expectation in the future, in God's future. So hope is actually looking beyond the structure to God and the future. I'm expecting God to come. I'm expecting him to answer. I'm expecting him to work. I don't know how he'll do it. I don't know when he'll do it. I'm expecting the return of Christ. I'm expecting him to throw Satan and his hosts into the lake of fire. I'm expecting that all the wrongs will be righted. I'm expecting he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. I'm expecting all those things. I'm just waiting. I don't know when. I don't know how. So when in God's love, you're looking to his certain future, you just don't know when it's going to land. So that's hopes. Love hopes. And then finally, love endures. It's really a synonym, bears and endures. They're synonyms of each other. Endures has the idea to stay or to stand still. It's where we get the word, when Jesus says, abide in me in John 15, it's a similar word. To endure, to keep going, to keep staying there, to wait, to remain firm, to persevere. Persevere is the idea not of a nice sunny walk where it's warm and the ground is flat. It has the idea of trudging through mud and a downpour and darkness, right? You, you just keep taking another step and another step and another step. And I don't know when I'm going to get to the end of it. I'm just going to keep persevering. I'm going to push through. So there's the completed structure. Our life under the love of God and loving God, we bear, we bear under the weight of whatever's happening and we endure and persevere. Those are pillars that hold up the roof, right? They just, they're going to stand there. They're going to hold up. They're not going to go anywhere. We're going to just keep waiting. We don't know how heavy it'll get, how long it'll be. We just keep there trusting above our head. We're trusting that God loves us. God has a plan that he's going to win. And we're expecting him to return, him to come back. You can flip it around and put Christ in there, right? Christ so loved us that he bore up under the life that we live. He said he lived the perfect life, but he was tempted in every way, but was without sin. So he bore up under the weight of living on earth. He endured the cross. He endured bearing our sins. He endured the shame. He endured rejection. He endured the wrath of God. Trusting all along that the Father had a plan, that the Father would raise him from the dead. He would, not, he would not abandon his soul to Sheol. He trusted completely in the Father's will to even go to the cross. Fully expecting that he'd be raised from the dead. He'd be glorified to the right hand of the Father. He'd be given the name above every name. That he would return in glory to bring his saints home. That's Jesus' love. Jesus' love bears, endures, trusts, hope. And we want a love that does the same thing, that we're going to bear up under the current circumstances. We're going to bear up as the tide goes out. We're going to endure a decaying culture. We're going to trust that God has a plan. We're going to expect that his spirit's going to move and his word's going to move. And so we just, that's why love keeps on loving. Love keeps on loving. It bears, endures, it believes, it hopes. So I have a couple of passages that spell that out for us. And, and what does it look like to keep loving, to keep enduring? I want to look at these. They're, they're great examples. The first one is in James. 
chapter 5. James chapter 5. Going to the right if you're turning with me. James chapter 5. Right after Hebrews, before Peter. James chapter 5. If you want to turn along. James chapter 5 verse 7 spells out a little bit of what does it look like to keep on loving, to bear up, to endure, to believe, to hope. What does it look like to keep doing it? So James chapter 5 verse 7 says, be patient. Some of you are going, oh, I'm out. Right? No, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know how long it's going to be. It could be this afternoon. It could be another 500 years. I don't know. So be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Yesterday, we planted a little apple tree. It was basically a cutting off somebody else's tree. And, uh, and a neighbor came and advised us about proper soil. And, and I told her, you know, in three to five years, I'm going to bring you an apple. She was very grateful for that promise, right? Oh, I'll look for it. I'll, she said, I'll put it in my calendar. So we wait. I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how far the tide's going to go out. I don't know how ugly it's going to get. I don't know. We wait. We're patient. We keep loving. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's those words, endure, be strengthened. It says, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And that's something I'm really praying in this series that we would keep loving one another. I'm concerned that Christians are chewing up other Christians. We have different views on COVID and masks and politics and, and, we're not gonna, and those are the things that cannot divide us. We need to keep loving Christ, keep waiting for his return, major on Jesus, not those other things. We don't want to grumble. We don't want to chew each other up. God's the judge. God's in control of those things. Let's love one another. <clears throat> then he says, as an example of suffering and patience. So what do we look to? He says, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So if you need an example to look to, how do I keep loving? Look at any of the prophets. Read about Jeremiah. He spoke the name of the Lord. They threw him in a pit, put him in the stocks, stopped feeding him, hated him. And then at the end when he said, please don't flee to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. God says not to go to Egypt. They said, we're going and we're taking you with. So he dies in Egypt, right? Well, that's an uplifting story. But he says that's an example of patience. Jeremiah never saw the coming of the Lord. Jeremiah never saw their return from exile. He just had to keep trusting. So you think of all the prophets. They told God's going to come. God's going to send a deliverer. None of them saw it, but they kept faith. We don't know if Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime. We don't know if the revival is going to start in your lifetime. I don't know, but we're going to keep waiting and loving and being patient. Verse 11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Some go, ooh, don't throw Job at me. To love, to keep on loving, we've got to be patient like Job. If you think your life is bad, just read the first couple of chapters of the book of Job. Everyone dies, everything's taken, and he gets a bunch of sores on his body. And he has to hang in there. And so that, he's just saying that's what love, to keep on loving, to keep bearing up, to keep believing, to keep enduring, to keep hoping, because God's got it. And in the midst of all this, we want to love one another and love God and love the community. There's another one. It's probably just the next page or so over. 1 Peter chapter 4. Mine's one page over. 1 Peter 4. Maybe yours is one. Maybe it's two. 
Similar thing, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Peter's saying this a long time ago, right? So there's this constant expectation. It's right here. It's at the door. It's coming. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We want to stay in control of our actions and thoughts. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is what I'm praying for us. Someone can wrong you, can hurt you, can say terrible things, and we can take them on and fight them and get upset. But that just inflames it, right? It just charges someone up and throws gas on the fire. Or if you love someone through a wrong, it can cover. It can bring healing. It can bring forgiveness. So that's that love. Keeps on loving through a hurt, through a wrong. Love can cover a multitude of sins. Love can call people back from rebellious living. We just keep reaching out, loving. Number nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We want to reach out and and welcome each other. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So all the gifts we have in God, all the ways you're serving, are to glorify God and to serve one another. That's what this keep on loving. Use your gifts. Don't pull back. Don't hold up. Don't run in fear. Serve one another. And the end is that God is glorified. That's what we saw as one of those marks of revival. If it's for our glory, that's not going to bring revival. If it's for God's glory that we serve one another and put your gifts into action, that is, that's part of that revival story, that God is glorified in everything. He's coming back. So that's why we want to love keeps on loving. God somehow keeps loving this world that has found ways to rebel and to be hostile and to reject him. And God is patient with them. Right? God's love continues to bear what he sees on earth. It's a little bit depressing to watch the news. God just sees it all at once. He doesn't need a news channel. He can see everything at once all the time. And he's continuing to bear with and endure, knowing the gospel is going out, expecting the response. God keeps loving us. And I want to encourage you that love in your life looks like this. You're going to bear up under the current struggles, whatever they are for you. We're going to endure because God's on the throne. We're trusting he's at work. We're expecting him to come. And that's why we just keep loving and keep waiting and keep praying and keep serving, knowing he's got it. He's got it. So what we've been doing the last few weeks is giving examples of ways that you could jump in and love and serve in our community or even wider. A few weeks ago, we looked at child care worldwide and how to partner and sponsor children. Last week, we looked at Love, Inc., Love in the Name of Christ, and ways that you can serve people who are struggling in this community. And today, we have a new one, a a group we've never actually worked with before called the Foster Closet. So I want you to take a a look at this video and interview here, and then we'll talk about how we can jump in and and work with them uh, to love this community. So let's take a look at this video.